All right, uh, we're going to have a guest reader. <laughs> Actually, you, you, either one works, right? Yeah. yeah. Abilene's volunteered to, uh, <laughs> voluntold to do uh, verse chapter 13. So why don't we stand and read this together? The one of the most famous passages in all the Bible. All right. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to, and to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who is slain. If anyone has, a ear, has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence, and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound is healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak, and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and this number is 666. Please be seated. So I know you all want to skip to verse uh, 18, but we have a few more to go before it. <laughs> but before we dive into the passage this morning, just want to make three points by way of introduction to help us get on the right foot. Uh, we know how hard Revelation is to interpret, so I want to get us on the right, in the right frame of mind. The first thing is to take a quick, quick trip down memory lane and remember what we learned last time in Revelation 12. So in Revelation 12, we were introduced to three characters. There was the dragon, the male child, and the woman. And we saw that right from the beginning, this dragon creature wanted to destroy and devour the male child. The dragon was Satan, the male child was the Lord Jesus Christ, and the woman represented um, uh, God's people. 
And so what we have then is uh, this enmity between all three. But remember, Satan probably believed that at Christ's death, that was a defeat of him. And so Satan would have been standing victorious going, I've conquered Jesus. I've finally devoured him the way I intended right from the beginning. But then it says that he ascended into heaven. And so his, his death didn't prove to be his defeat, but his victory. And the crucifixion and resurrection actually meant his victory over death and the power of sin. But remember too in chapter 12, even though, even though he was a defeated enemy, he was a scrappy little guy, and he wasn't going to go down without a fight. And so the only thing he had left to do was go after God's people. If he's a defeated enemy, he's got to at least go after God's people and make their life a living hell. And so that was chapter 12. So in chapter 12 then, um, the question was really to answer what's going on in the world in regards to all the animosity that Christians face and all the deception of, of the world in general. Like, who's the source and what's going on? And, and the answer was, holy war. Holy war, that's the source of trouble for a believer. Well, chapter 13 seeks to answer how the holy war is fought. How the holy war is fought. So John introduces two forces opposed to God's people. One, um, the sea beast in verse 1, and second, the earth beast in verse 11. And they work as Satan's agents to, to uh, basically um, work with him in terms of bringing hell on earth. And all the commentators agree, it's unanimous, that this is intentional by John and is to be understood as an unholy trinity. So we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then we have Satan with the two beasts. And if you do, I'm not going to get into it lots today, but if you want to do a lot of homework, if you study the parallels between the dragon and the Father, the second beast in Jesus Christ, and the third beast in the Holy Spirit, you, you see interesting parallels in Revelation. That, that could be a fun sermon series along its own. But we are going to see today that the unholy trinity is going to mimic God. Even in this chapter today, I'm going to point out a couple key observations on that. So the unholy trinity is going to mimic the holy trinity in holy war. Alright? And so that's going to be important. Third, I want to just talk one more time about how to properly interpret Revelation from the way I understand it. I know I sound like a broken record, but it's so important. So we've talked about apocalyptic genre being metaphorical to teach spiritual truths. I want to give you another way of looking at that same truth from a different picture. And I want you to think of political cartoons. Political cartoons. That's when symbols and characters and animals and so on represent countries or parties or their policies. And when we look at political cartoons, we know they're not to be literal in interpretation, but we're to see the symbolic truth behind them. So those of you who existed um, in the Cold War days, right, from 1947 to 1991, when uh, there was tension between Russia, the Soviet Union, and the United States, Uncle Sam was United States, right, Uncle Sam, and the bear was the Soviet Union. And so this is a political cartoon, and when you look at that, if I was to make a description uh, about to, to prove my political points, I could draw that picture and everyone familiar with the language knows exactly what that means. We've got two empires fighting for global domination and there's tension between the two and they're represented in characters. Today, if you're an American, um, you also know what an elephant and donkey represent. So an elephant and donkey 
uh, has some political, uh, um, basically uh, symbolic meaning as well. And so we know that um, the donkeys are Democrats and the Republicans are the elephants. And so again, when we see a tug of war over the White House, we know exactly what we meant. Now, if I was given a vision of this, I would write down on my paper, I see one like an elephant holding a rope with red and white stripes, right? And I see one with a like ugly face that looks like the face of a, a donkey, you know what I mean? With big ears like an elephant and all this type of stuff. And everyone would have to interpret it through my political lens. 2,000 years later, if we had this stuff, people would make all sorts of spiritual applications that weren't true from it. But the people in those days knew exactly what he was talking about. Okay, and this is really, really important because what we're going to find out in these pictures of the beasts, they're political cartoons, but they're rooted in the Old Testament. Once again, they're rooted in the Old Testament. Um, my, my favorite uh, preacher in the world is Dick Lucas, and uh, Dick Lucas basically said um, in his sermons, like, that he, see, he says, you have to have a, uh, when you go to Revelation, think of the Old Testament as, the Old Testament as being your dictionary to interpret it. And I've been saying that right from the start, right from the start, and here we are again with the same reality. Okay, so with that being said then, uh, uh, let's look at the first beast. And again, it's rooted in the Old Testament. Now, let me first show you where this comes from. This comes from, actually, well, why don't we, um, why don't we read it? <clears throat> he says in the beginning, I saw a beast coming out, out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. On his horns were ten diadems, on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like that of a lion. And the dragon gave him power and authority and great authority. Okay? Now let's look at Daniel to see what he says. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions while on his bed. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. Behold, another beast, the second one resembling a bear. After this, I kept looking, and behold, another one like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. And behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying, and extremely strong. It had large iron teeth. It was devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before, and it had ten horns. Absolutely everything in there is in Revelation 13. So when we go through Daniel's day, what were the kingdoms? Babylon was a kingdom. Persia was a kingdom. Um... Um, Greece was a kingdom, and so on and so forth. And so Daniel makes it even more clear what, what he means by this, by, by translating this for us. In the vision, he says, these great beasts, were, which are four number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. He doesn't leave it for some weird interpretation. These animals are kings, or these animals represent empires or political uh, governing authorities. There's no question as to what's going on here. So now when we come to Revelation 13, he's saying this, I want you to understand that who I'm speaking about here is a governing authority. It's a state, it's an empire, it's a political ruler. 
So who is the ruler in this day? Rome. So what he's saying is this. Rome is the guy I'm speaking about. You Christians who live in the Roman Empire under persecution, let me tell you that I'm using Daniel analogy to tell you about your own state, your own country, your own empire. You know the language, you know the political cartoon I'm using, go back to Daniel. That's what I meant back then, that's what I mean now. Now when you think about this now, this isn't powerful. Satan goes to holy war. What's the first beast he uses to fight holy war? Government. Political powers. The state. He, use, he can act and use them to influence the world, to deceive the ungodly, and to go after God's people. That's one of his counterfeit parts of his trinity. God can, or Satan can use the state in this way. And so he does so in three ways. He goes after, goes after God's people in three ways, and God himself. The first one's in verse 6. Look at verse 6. He opened his mouth, and his blasphemies came out against God, to blaspheme his name in his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. So the state can actually slander God's name, right? The government can say, there is no God, right? We don't care about his policies. He's a joke. He has no place in our society. He's no place in our way of life. Actually, we blame him for the atrocities in the state of this world. Right? That's, and, and he goes after God's people in a way of making this clear. And this is the second point. The state can often seek to harm God's people. That's verses 7 through 10. It was given to him a, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And the authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. And this is important in verse 10. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here's the perseverance in the faith of the saints. So again, we know that the state can often seek to harm God's people. If you live in China, if you live in Iran, if you live in Afghanistan, if you live in North Korea, when they read this chapter 13, they're going, of course. This is the reality of being a Christian in this world. They don't know any different. It's when we come to it with a Western view, we think this must mean something else because we haven't experienced that yet <laughs> to that degree. And so Revelation is a discipleship manual. It's preparing you and me for what's potentially to come. And to be ready. The third thing he does is he deceives with through the state is he deceives those who don't know Jesus. Verse 8. Verse 8. All those who dwell on the earth will worship him. The beast, not God. So all those who dwell on the earth will worship the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written in the foundation of the world in the book of life. And why would they worship them? Because they're being deceived and they think the state has their back. Has their best interest in mind. See how incredible of a statement this is, you know, family. Now, when I was studying this, I, was, I had to harmonize something though. I found myself in tension with the rest of the Bible. Because in the rest of the Bible, in Romans and 1 Peter especially, the government's put in positive light. It's put in a positive light. So I'll give you an example. Look at 13, 1 to 5 of Romans. 
Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for the authorities that exist have been established by God. Right? They've been established by God. And consequently, whoever rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment upon themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant. And I like the NASB, my translation, it says a minister. A, a minister. Uh, for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities. So you see the tension I was in when I was thinking about this, because this came to my mind going, well, in one sense, Satan's the government, God's, sorry, in one sense, the government is God's, God's servant. In the other sense, he's Satan's agent. So how do you harmonize these two things? <laughs> okay. Well, John's not contradicting himself. He's not contradicting himself. The issue is this. When the government that is put in place by God to act as his extension of his arm in terms of morality and justice... When they move out from under God's uh, care and, and, and love for him, and they, do, and they start to act in, uh, differently than his moral code, and they step out from underneath his rule and his ordained role for them, then there's a problem. When they don't act and they start to move in sort of God's ordained role, there's a problem. And now, because of their denial of God and their care for God, they now become Satan's agents. Johnson, Daryl Johnson, in his commentary, says it this, and he goes right for the juggler, he wastes no time. He says, John is opening up for us a sobering, unseen reality of the present. Governments that step out from under the rule of God do not become divine, they become demonic. Governments that exalt humanity as the measure of all things do not become more humane, they become more bestial. That's why you read commentaries, because they can summarize what's going on in my brain. It's all scrambled up in about five seconds. But as I got looking at this closer, there was an observation that really stood out to me that kind of summarized this whole thing, because I was thinking again, application. How does, this, how does this work in my own life? I realized that the heart of the matter here was when a government seeks to take the place of God. When it seeks to take the place of God. And I can show you from the text where I get this from. The word worship. The word worship of the beast occurs four times. Four times. Look at it with me. Look at verse 4. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast. Saying, who is like the beast? And who is able to wage war with him? Look at verse 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. And look at verse 12. He exercises all authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell on the earth to worship the first beast. The issue is worship. Worship's about loyalty. Worship's about allegiance. Worship's about where you take your cues from. Who calls the shots? Who calls the shots? And what John is saying is, be careful where you put your trust and your hope. Now, life in Canada has been pretty good in comparison to the rest of the world. 
And if you don't think that's true, then you don't you must not be waking up in the morning and facing the realities of life because we have a pretty good compared to the rest of the world. But John is saying to us, be careful where you put your hope and your security. And remember, first and foremost, where your citizenship lies. You see, Paul said in Philippians 3.20, in speaking against those who oppose Jesus and the gospel, he said this, their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, in which we wait for our Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, it's not wrong to care about politics. It's not wrong to serve as a politician and try to get into, the, into the, that arena. But remember, first and foremost, we are not card carriers of the Conservative Party. We're not card carriers of the NDP, the Liberals, Republicans, Democrats were card carriers of Jesus Christ and we belong to his kingdom. I want to give you a story from Bill Johnson, or Bill Johnson, Daryl Johnson again. This is like he, uh, his, his commentary, thank you Roger for that commentary. He's excellent. Listen to him apply this truth with a missionary from the Philippines. That's not it. Oh, oh darn, I forgot. Did I forget this commentary? I did. Okay, here's what he said in the commentary. He said, um, he said he was talking with a missionary fellow and uh, he was serving at a naval base in the Philippines, and I forget the name of it. And uh, what was happening was uh, the U.S. was now moving out and it was going to create instability in, in, the, in the area. And the missionary turned to Daryl Johnson and said, who is now going to basically uh, look out for me and, like, and basically promote the gospel now that the military is moving out of the Philippines? And Daryl said, he just stared at him with, a, like, with, with like sort of piercing eyes, and the guy realized what he said. He'd forgotten that actually he doesn't need the military there for him to promote God's kingdom and spread the gospel. He was putting his security in the presence of the U.S. and the Philippines as his means by doing God's work. You see how easy it is to misapply this. And he realized what he said as soon as it came out of his mouth. He's like, oh my goodness, like, this is wrong. I've placed my hope in the wrong thing. I've got my hope in the U.S. military, not in God's God and his kingdom. And what he can do apart from the military. Again, application-wise, it matters because you might be hoping that a certain politician gets out of power and another one comes in. <laughs> because then things are going to be better. Now, they might be better in some degree, but mark my words, that politician is not going to do what Ezra and Nehemiah did. They're not going to stand up and say, now that I'm in power, let me open the Bible and read to you everything we're going to do in terms of serving Canada now, or U.S., or whatever. They're not going to do that. So when we are asked to live out our lives as citizens, we take our cues from the Bible first, and we live out those mandates in the way we live as a citizen here, primarily. We put our hope in Him and in that. We don't seek our salvation in human systems, but in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is why John says believers in the world find themselves in trouble. <laughs> they find themselves in trouble. And it's not that we're seeking to be troublemakers, but the more the political powers seek to play God, the more we'll, we'll be perceived in this way. And so Thomas Torrance writes this. 
A church cannot be a true church without causing trouble. Not that a church sets out to cause trouble, it's just that in seeking to be a true church, a church true to Jesus Christ will make waves and will find itself in tribulation of one sort or another. And you know, this is why in verse 10, at the end of this whole thing, at the end of the beast, he says to this, he says this, here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. After this whole spiel, well, of course, of course it's going to take perseverance. And when I was doing my papers for my studies in Revelation at school, um, I, I found in my, in my homework that the word overcome or persevere occurs 20 times or more in Revelation. 22 chapters, there's at least 20 references to the word persevere or overcome. So again, I, I, when, you, when you study the Bible, the way to learn what the themes are about is to look for reoccurrences, like worship occurred four times. The recurrence of perseverance is a mandate in the revelation. Well, of course, because again, he's speaking about this is a manual for all the churches, for all history, for all time. I'll make one comment about the fatal or the make one comment about the this whole thing about the fatal wound. You'll notice that he talks about this beast having a fatal wound in verse 3. And then it occurs again in 12 and 14. Um, I don't know exactly what this is referring to, but let me give you a suggestion. Uh, if you go through the Roman history and you, and you search it out, you will find that Rome experienced in 68 and 69 AD four successive empires, or, or, or four successive um, uh, Caesars in, in a year and a half. So basically, from 68 to 69, four emperors came and rose. Now, we, other emperors reigned for a couple of decades and things like that. So what that tells us is that in that time, it was, uh, there was huge civil unrest. And Rome, for the first time, looked like it was losing its power. And it looked like it wasn't going to survive. And it was going through turmoil. And it was on rocky ground. But then, it got one particular uh, Caesar, and it regained its stability. And so a lot of the people that I read think that the fatal wound is referring to that was now sort of healed was this idea that the beast, who looked like it was on its way out, revived and continued to be strong. And if this was written in around 1890, which I believe it is under Domitian, this is 20 years removed from the civil unrest. And so he can describe the empire in this way. Just a suggestion though. Uh, I am always nervous with extra biblical commentaries because uh, it's not that you don't know if it's a truth, right? But you presume it's to be the truth based on your much homework you can do. So there you go. Okay, now to the second beast. If the sea beast represents the state or the empire or the governing authorities, the beast of the earth represents the ideology that fuels it. It represents the ideology that fuels it along with those in power that promote and enforce the ideology. Now we know the ideology is primarily a religious one. And we know this because later on in Revelation, three times, I'll get there later, three times this beast is called the false prophet. So the name later is interchanged from beast of the earth to false prophet three times. So when you hear false prophet, you know that the, it's, a, it's a religious ideology not promoting God's way. But here's the point. 
Look at the chief aim of this beast in verse 11. The chief aim. Then I saw another beast come up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke like a dragon. He exercises all authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it worship the first beast. He makes those who dwell on the earth worship the first beast. He makes them worship the human system, the government, the, the, the political institutions, to make them think that they've got their backs. I'm secure in them. And it's a primarily a religious ideology. Primarily a religious ideology. So the role of the earth beast then is to do whatever it takes to manipulate people into trusting and following political power that has moved out from under God. And so to make someone do that then, you have to make them see the necessity for worship, don't you? If I'm going to put my trust in this system, they're going to have to do something in this world to make me believe they're trustworthy, to worship them as plausible and worthwhile. And I have to, that's the only way you're going to get them to do it. They have to show themselves as somewhat, uh, well actually they have to show themselves as godlike, so that you can put your faith in them. Now, the result of this is brilliant because it gives solidarity to the empire, doesn't it? If the, if the whole nation is worshipping you, you give solidarity and it ensures your lasting power. Because who's going to unearth you? Because life is awesome with you in power. What John tells us, as at the heart of this, in order for them to do this, at the heart of it is deception. The heart of it is, is, is deception. And we pick this up in verse 13 and 14. He says, He performs signs, great signs, so that even He makes the first come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And He deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given to Him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound and the sword and has come to life. So again, we see this whole thing about uh, signs and wonders. I'm not sure how, how literal John intended us to understand this, but it is possible he does mean it in a very literal way. Think of Moses when he shows up in Egypt to free Israel from slavery. Moses goes there, and he stands before Pharaoh, and he throws a staff down, and God makes it a snake, because God has the power to do that. The magicians, the magicians do signs and wonders to convince Pharaoh and the other Egyptians that Moses is not real, and his God's not important because they can do the same thing. So they create more spiritual blindness by having their magicians turn them into snakes, and then there's a power struggle and God's snake wins. When they went to the Nile, somehow they were able to do a sleight of hand and make the Nile do what God did, was make it turn red. So we know that uh, emperors and rulers and politicians of high ranking have, can employ um, and use sleight of hand stuff and magic, magic and stuff to uh, you know, um, convince the masses. Ferdinand Marcos, do you guys know that name? Philippines uh, uh, president, uh, dictator from I think the 80s, used to employ magic in the Philippines in his like in his presidential palace to keep the people like believing that he was the guy that should be there. So only 30 years, 30, 40 years ago, we had a, like people doing that. Perhaps, though, the deception is not to be taken so literally, and it's more metaphorical. Now, when you think of deception, what, deception is powerful in this way. You make someone believe one thing, 
when something else is going on behind the scenes. You have to make it look like this is actually happening when actually something else is going on. And so there's all sorts of ways this can be accomplished by people in power, where they can try to create illusions, create realities in one sense, to, when there's something else is going on behind the scenes, to say to the masses, you know what, we're trustworthy, and you should believe what we're saying. The next thing that people do, though, according to John, or the, oh, sorry, I should say this again. The next thing that happens when um, this religio religious ideology is sort of going strong is it, requ it requires an image. It, it requires an image. We pick this up again in verse 14 and 15. Um, he says this. You'll notice that he says that he makes the image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. Tell those who dwell on the earth to make an image. And in verse 15, he speaks the image again. It was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast would even speak. So again, image is important in religious ideology. And obviously, we've learned in the seven churches to uh, seven church message we did a few months ago. Images were everywhere: temples, shrines, statues, all of our archaeological evidence that we saw in the powerpoints, all dedicated to the Roman gods and the emperors. And so everywhere you went, everywhere you went, you were reminded of the religious ideology that backed the state. And, and so you were always remembered like, man, I'm in awe of how like, basically powerful and awesome this place is and these people are. And these images would basically say, like, you know, uh, you know, reminding you who's in charge, who's got your back, who makes your life secure. And at the same time, don't mess around because there's punishment if you do. So if you were thinking about doing something against the empire, and you walk by this massive statue of Nero, you're like, I better think twice, right? The religious ideology is backed by the image. Whenever a country wants to push an anti-God agenda, there's some sort of similar image used to promote the propaganda. Every time. All I have to do is look through history. The third way, though, when you can't get people to coerce, or sorry, coerce, uh, to buy in through those sort of more passive means, you turn to threats and physical violence and so on. And there's two here. The first one is life itself. Well, threaten to take your life itself. In verse 15, he says that it was given to him to, make, to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So you don't want to buy into the religious ideology, you don't want to buy into the, the, uh, the policies of the, the government and the state that you live under, we'll take your life. That's one way. But the other way is to inflict economic sanctions upon you to make life miserable. And we pick this up in verse 16. And he causes all the small and the great and the rich and the poor and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead and he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. The most probably famous text in all of Revelation, it's given the Bible its fame in some ways. Everyone wants to talk about the name of the beast and the mark and the 666 and so on. So what is the mark? What's the mark? 
In the 80s, if you lived in the 80s, according to a Christian friend of mine, it was the Visa card. No joke. If you owned a, if, you know, if you're all dealing in money and if you had a Visa card, that was the sign that you were marked because now you can be trapped. Some people think it's tattoos. Some think people are expecting a microchip under the skin. Some people think it's the vaccine. Just straight up. Let's use our tools that we've been learning from John. Does anyone know what the Shema is? The Shema, and if you do, yell it out. If you don't, that's okay. Does anyone know what the Shema is? Pardon me? Uh, no, but it's, you're in the right uh, culture. Pardon me? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Perfect. Here it's the Jewish um, sort of prayer that they say basically every morning to remind them of the solidarity of only one God and their worship of one God. Okay? Here's what's powerful about the Shema. Let's read it. <laughs> Let's read it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and your strength. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. Rhetor- I guess I'm like, not trying to be like a jokester here, but do you actually believe that God was commanding the Jewish people to put God's word on their forehead and walk around the town and on their hands? Of course not. He first says, I want them to be in your heart. What he's saying is this. I'm trying to give you language to help you understand of who you're to be allegiant to. If you're marked in this way by having my word on your hands and your heart and your foreheads, you, you, are, you progressively belong to me. You belong to me. You're marked by me. It's obvious in the way you live and the way you think. It's a spiritual mark of belonging to God the Father. It's about character. Your forehead represents thought. Your hand represents action. The mark of the beast is a reverse Shema. It's a reverse Shema. Remember, we talked about in the beginning in the intro, it's, it's a counterfeit trinity. He's minuping God. And he's saying this, if you take the mark, you'll be allowed to buy and sell and do those. If you don't take the mark, you won't. What's the mark? It's obvious that you're allegiant to Jesus Christ or you're allegiant to the, 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 the cult of the empire and its ideology. And so here's how it practically looks. How do I know I'm marked in the Roman Empire? So, um, I've been, I belong to a trade guild and I'm a coppersmith. And I've got 20 other people in my trade guild. I become a Christian that weekend. But I was at the trade guild uh, um, meeting on the Friday and I'm a Christian now on a Sunday. Next Friday is another meeting, so I show up. The cups get poured out, and the wine gets put in the glass, and everyone says, toast to Caesar for his goodness to us, our sense of security under him, and as Lord and God. And now you as a Christian say, you don't drink your cup. And your cronies around you, the other 19, look at you and say, why didn't you raise your cup? You did last week and the week before, and you said, I can't be allegiant to him anymore. And now you're marked. Everyone knows you belong to God and Jesus Christ. The mark of the beast, people, is not something that's coming necessarily, like coming in like five years from now and ten years from now, and you're to look for an individual little thing. The mark of the beast is how you live. 
It's who you're allegiant to. It's a reverse Shema, just like it was for the Jewish people. And you know what? The marking is prevalent in Revelation in terms of belonging to Jesus Christ. Look at Revelation 7.3 with me. We just read this. Revelation 7 and verse 3. Um, you see, this is about the judgment. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. <laughs> Again, God's not going to—he's not going to seal us on the forehead. He's just saying, "I'm going to—I'm going to mark my people out." So there's a sealing of God's people. Revelation 14 and verse one. We all uh, look at this. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having the name, his name, and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. This is pervasive language to tell you who you belong to, and it's obvious in the way you live your life. How about 666? Here is the wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. In the ancient world, there was something called gematria. Gematria. Gematria is this. It's the use of numbers to spell words. Every letter was given a numerical value. So I just used our alphabet for fun. Okay? In English, we might do something like this. Let's make A number one, B number two, C number three, D number four. So if I was to take Kevin's name, and I have, and there's 26 numbers, I, mean, I could say Kevin's number potentially is sort of like you know 15 by adding all of his numbers together, right? Or all of his all of his uh, letters with a numerical value. So so I could say you know Toby, you're 22, and you're 44, and so on and so forth, right? That's how it would look. Commentaries uh, told, uh, are unanimous on this. They actually found an archaeological cave in Pompeii. A cave with archaeology, yeah. And in, sorry, in an archaeological dig, they found a cave in Pompeii. And they found an inscription on the cave wall saying, I love her whose number is 545. I love her whose number is 545. So we know that this kind of stuff existed in the Roman Empire. In Greek... Nero's name was translated from Greek to Hebrew, came to the number 666. And so what people believe is saying here is this. And that's why he says, you know, use wisdom in this because you can calculate the number. They had to calculate the number. Remember that first, right? It has to make sense in their context. They have to know who he's talking about. It can't be some future guy that they don't have a clue about. <laughs> So he says, you know the number. And so if it, if it was Nero, here's what he's saying. There's a, a Nero-type figure that I'm kind of talking about to represent the sort of religious ideology who carries it out. But I actually don't think he's talking about Nero. There's one more option which I think fits the context better. The word beast, translated from Greek to Hebrew, is... Numbered 666. So the actual, like the beast of the earth, the word beast is, can be calculated 666. And right now we've talked about this entire sermon about the beast as a state or a religious ideology, not an individual person. And this is really powerful then, because when he says um, this is the number, 
the number is that of a man, he's not talking about this is a number of a specific individual, this is a number that represents man. It's a human number. Okay, and that makes sense because number seven is perfection. Represents perfection and always used of God. Right? The Holy Spirit in chapter one has seven spirits. The seven spirits of God. It's a number of completion, perfection. It's God's number. Number six is man's number. He's incomplete and so on and so forth. But the beast is also incomplete and it represents false religion. So what he's really saying is, you know, um, this beast, the 666 false religion, it's completely incomplete. If you follow after it, it always falls short of the glory of God. And that's what he's saying. That's what I believe he's saying. Again, using the Old Testament to interpret Revelation is powerful and necessary, I believe, to understand the spiritual truth that John is actually trying to convey. And so let's look at the big picture now. I didn't write any formal lessons. I'm going to give you the chapter 13 and basically two bullets of what John's message is. And listen to how it speaks to our culture today, cultures to come, and cultures all over the world. And have ever, like from the day, the first ones in the days of sort of like after Cain and Abel, all the way to the final one before Jesus returns. Is this not the truth for the Christian church or the Christian reality? How the holy war is fought by the dragon, by the devil. Satan, in the formation of an un unholy trinity, will use existing political powers along with religious ideology to deceive the world and persecute followers of Jesus Christ. As a result, followers of Jesus need to persevere and stand strong against his tactics, knowing that their ultimate allegiance belongs to Christ, no matter their earthly cost. Does that not sound like the Christian reality throughout the world? Revelation's an amazing book. It speaks to Christians for all time, through all stages, starting with these guys in the Roman Empire, and it's going to be true all the way to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Amen.